Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, but should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Before we get to our guests, we'd like to thank those of you who financially support our show and help us continue with these interviews. And if you'd like to do that by making a one-time donation or a monthly donation for as little as $5 a month, price of a cup of coffee today, you can find out how to do that by going to our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Now, there was a study that came out in July of this year that stated that opioid use disorder and opioid addiction remain at epidemic levels in the U.S. and worldwide. Three million U.S. citizens and 16 million individuals around the world have had or currently suffer from opioid use disorder. Our guest today was taking OxyContin for chronic pain as well as a lot of other prescription drugs. And joining us from Phoenix, Arizona, to tell us how cannabis has changed your life is Debbie Wimberly. Debbie, thanks for doing this. We greatly appreciate it. Now, what was causing the pain that got you hooked on all these medications? Well, first, thank you for having me. I appreciate this. I developed what's called chronic regional pain syndrome, which we call Krups. And it was from a freak accident of a coffee cup flipping off of a ledge, hitting my foot and short-circuiting my central nervous system in that instance, and left me with debilitating pain of 10 for over three decades. It's just a cup of coffee? It was actually the coffee cup, not the coffee. Not the coffee itself. Just the impact, right. Yeah, no (laughs) burns, no anything, just a big mess on the floor. The cup didn't break, but it was just actually the way the impact and the force at which it hit that caused that to short circuit my central nervous system. Wow. What was that like? Well, if you've ever been electrocuted, that's what it felt like. Immediately, an electrical shock went running through my system, and I've lived with that electrical shock since. It's something that's not ever left me. I was electrocuted as a kid. My cousin fell off the bed, and two prongs were sticking out of the wall, and so I grabbed them thinking I would pull them out before my dad found out, and little did I know I became electrocuted. So that's why I know that feeling, and that's exactly It's like I'm hot on the inside, and it's burning. Wow. Now, what did the doctors tell you about it? The, immediately when my doctor saw me, uh, right away I went, well, I, this happened on a Saturday. I was in the doctor's office on Monday morning and just walked in the room and turned around and said, I know what you have. I'm not going to touch you. I'm sending you to the hospital right away. You have, back then they called it RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, uh, because they didn't have enough knowledge. This was like 1995 to understand how this whole central nervous system worked with this disorder. And so I lived in a cam boot for a very long time because they thought, and it, your legs can dystrophy uh, when you have this and get stuck. So I lived with a cam boot on for years. What is that? A cam boot? Mm-hmm. It is a device that you see them now a lot of times when people have a broken leg. Instead of putting a cast on it, it's a, mm-hmm. a boot with a very thick sole yeah. with straps around it to be, hold your leg stationary so that it can't move. Okay. No, you had that on for months. What was the pain like for you? It's a pain that no one should ever have to live through or experience. It's intense. It never stops. 
it's a constant burn. It felt like, like I said, it felt like my body was on fire. If you've ever stood next to a fireplace or to a grill, you know how that heat comes off and it makes you feel warm and you know you need to step aside. Right. I can't step aside. It's there. It's inside of you. So that's constantly building and it constantly just sends like electrical shocks up and down your system. So, you know, you can be sitting there and then it's like you kind of jump because there's an electrical shock that's going through you that spikes, but it actually feels like you're burning up on the inside. And the interesting thing about it is if you've touched the outside of my limb, it's very cold. So it's like your body is in contrast with what it should be Mm -hmm. and you become very sensitive. So, uh, you know, like it was interesting the first time this happened, my husband and I were going out and I had my cam boot on and it was like a shock went through me and I said, there's something underneath my boot. Now my boot had probably a five inch wedge on it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, there's no way you can feel something underneath your boot. And I said, I guarantee you, if I pick up my foot, there's something underneath my boot. It was a hair. And he's like, you can't feel that. So I got the nickname, the princess in the pea out of that whole experience because, and I could do that repeatedly. Anytime anything was under my boot, I could still feel it. And that was just a hair just a hair. Wow. That's pretty sensitive. Even in like, if you go outside in the wind and like just the wind swishing against my limb is very painful. So I can't be outside in the wind and couldn't be outside in the wind at that time. So I had to really watch the weather to know what was going to be outside if I didn't Mm -hmm. have my cam boot on. What did the doctors uh, profess to do to try and in quotations, make you better? I did five years of experimental treatments. At the time, there was actually no treatment really known for this. So I kind of signed my life away doing five years of experimental treatments. What kind kind of are we talking here? I did sympathetic nerve blocks through my back. I did uh, gabapentin pushes. I did a lot of IV pushes, a lot of medications. I did controlled ketamine injections or IV injections. And we found that I had to have such high dose that no one could live in that space. So ketamine was not to get relief. And the only thing that ever provided me with relief was those ketamine pushes. And then after five years, they came in and said, everything we know or thought we knew about RSD does not exist. Forget everything we've taught you. And now it's called chronic regional pain syndrome. And we're going to start over. And that's when I said, okay, I'm done. When you figure it out, give me a call because I still live with side effects from some of the stuff that I did. When did you start uh, on the medications? The note you sent said that you were on, I think it was 28 pharmaceuticals? Yes. Through this process, because you become so sedentary, because the pain becomes so intense, I couldn't function. And there was nothing providing me with relief. So I developed severe lung conditions. And so I then transitioned from just not having pain to having COPD, MAC lung disease, MRSA in the lungs, being required to need a lung transplant, but denied the lung transplant because I had been put on OxyContin and they want success stories. And they felt that that would not be a successful story with taking OxyContin. So, you know, it was, uh, I bought into, I'm medically trained. I was a medical technologist and worked in oncology. And so I was waiting for the doctors to help me. They kept saying, you know, we can't do anything, but we'll figure something out, which they never did. And so in 2015, 
during the opiate crisis, they all said, we can't help you anymore stopping your Oxycontin and left me sitting in a wheelchair with a ruptured tendon with Krups and a severe lung disease that we didn't know what it was. And I had to find answers. And that's when I turned to cannabis. And they refused a lung transplant because of all the medications you were on that doctors prescribed to you. Exactly. And you were taking a lot of Oxy at the time, weren't you? I was at 240 milligrams a day. And the only thing they would ever tell me that there was a risk of that was getting constipated. Because we asked repeatedly, what's the risk of using this medication at these high doses? I mean, it's crazy when I think about it now, how high that dose was. And it was still in a pain of 10. This is what's even more ironic is that I was still gravitating to that. And I was still at a pain of 10 most time. And learning to get off of it, I realized there's a whole lot more risk to it than it was just being constipated. Yeah, I think I read somewhere where you were at 240, which you told us, and 288, I think, is really the danger level. That, um, And so you were very close to that. Very. A couple of more pills a day and uh, bingo. Yeah. And I mean, I'm one that follows the rules. So, you know, I never asked for a prescription early. I never took a pill when I wasn't supposed to, but I can guarantee you I was a clock watcher constantly watching to see when can I take that next pill. That's how much control it had over me. It wasn't helping with the pain. It was the medication that had that much control over me. Did any of these make any difference pain-wise to you, any of the medications you were on? The only thing that made a difference was the ketamine, but the doses were so high that you can't live in that psychedelic world and function. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Debbie, when you were on these this OxyContin and these pharmaceuticals, did you feel as though you were becoming a drug addict? Oh, yeah. I have a picture of a drawer that is a long rectangular drawer that's just loaded with medications that I used to take. I've taken more than that, but when I started cannabis, I, I have eliminated 28. Wow. Um, something that doctors have said would never be possible. Now, when you were on all these medications, the OxyContin and pharmaceuticals, what was the lowest point for you? I think the lowest point is understanding that you can't contribute to your family. You can't be the mom. You can't be the wife that you planned on being in your life. And so that's when the suicidal thoughts come in. And that's when it's like, I feel like I'm more of a burden to my family than a help to my family. And that's not something you discuss with your family. Mm -hmm. It's something you keep to yourself and you have to build some kind of strength or willpower to get through that because no one should ever live in a pain of 10 for three decades. There's no sense to that, especially when we know now how cannabis works and how it engages with our endocannabinoid system. Um, and I now know I did not have to live that life if I'd have had access to cannabis sooner. When you say suicidal thoughts, were you close at one point to maybe taking your own life? Well, this is the interesting part. I actually went and talked to doctors trying to ask them how to help me with this because I wanted to do it in a humane way, in a kind way for my family because we have some suicide in our family and I know the impact of what it does to a family and how it can destroy it and upset stuff. So I was trying to find a humane way to do this. And of course, we don't offer that as an option in the United States anyway. And I just wanted out. So, you know, but I didn't feel that I could do that to my family. That was my driving source that kept me from doing it is the pain that I thought it would cause my family. 
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I just, sorry to interrupt, Corey. I have a friend who uh, had Lyme disease and had a, a back surgery and he was in a lot of pain and, and uh, he just couldn't take it anymore. And uh, we have assisted suicide here in Canada. So uh, that's what he did. And uh, it's it was kind of shocking because he phoned me a few hours before it was to happen saying he was having tea with his son. And uh, I think a lot of people that we talked to, Corey, who were in real pain, like Debbie was, have had those thoughts, haven't mm-hmm. they? Yes. Yeah. And not necessarily so much because they actually want to die, but because yeah. they're, they, need, they just want a break from the pain. I mean, prior to me getting on cannabis back in the day with those five years, yeah, there were days I thought of suicide, not because I wanted to die. But because I just needed a break from the pain, just give me a break. So, oh. you know, I think that's largely what what's behind people wanting to commit suicide when they're going through that. Strongly, I agree with that. There was nothing about this that I did not want to live. I kept fighting to live. But when you can't reduce the pain and it's always the same from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, you can't sleep at night because you're in such pain. You don't get a break from it. And this is the thing I say. If you don't live in that kind of pain, you can't understand what it is to live like that because most yeah. people, most people's pain goes away. Yeah. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist, especially at that level, on a continuous basis. Yeah, so, it's a vicious, vicious downward spiral. Yes. And, you know, I had to give up my driving because I found myself driving to an appointment just a few days after this all happened. I got on the freeway in Massachusetts and drove over 35 minutes, cannot even tell you how I ended up where I ended up. And it's a wonder that I did not harm myself and someone else. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it scared me so much because I could not think because my pain was so intense. I was just trying to deal with those thoughts that I'm in pain. What can I do? I need this to stop. And so I had to give up driving. I had to give up work. So you lose everything that has been your system. And that you have grown to try to be in life. And now it just comes tumbling down because of a simple coffee cup hitting your foot and the medical system not knowing how to provide you with relief. Do you remember, Debbie, the point where you thought, I'm going to try cannabis? And do you remember what you took the first time? And what was that like for you, please? I will never forget that moment. In November of 2015, I went to my doctor's office for a routine, my routine yearly physical. And he said, we can no longer provide you with your opiates, your Oxycontin. Um, Don't know who will. Here's a list of doctors, but I don't know who will help you. And I'm like, why? I've been doing this for so long with you, you know, for decades. And he's like, well, we've made an office policy change. He never let me know what it really was. I now know it was the opiate crisis and the, the impact of everybody saying you can't prescribe opiates anymore. So... I went and visited numbers of doctors, made visits to pain clinics, trying to get relief. And everybody kept saying, you just need to get down to 90 milligrams a day. And I was at 240. And then we can help you. How do you get down to 90 milligrams a day if nobody's willing to help you and you're at 240? And if the 240 isn't giving you any relief. Right, exactly. And Mm -hmm. so it was like, I can't do this. Can I do cannabis? And everybody said no. And next thing I know, I I had a ruptured tendon, obviously. And so I was meeting with my doctor there and they said, well, we would help you get a license to use medical cannabis 
if you would like to try that and we'll put you in a study for diabetes, even though you don't have diabetes, we're trying to figure out how this works for controlling neuropathy pain and we'll put you in that study. So that was in December. So it'd been a month I was fighting this and within the next month by January, because the first cannabis I took, I went into the dispensary. I walked out with $500 worth of product. They knew nothing about me. They didn't know my health history. They knew nothing about my pharmaceuticals. And they were just like, oh, this will work. This will work. This will work. So I came home with $500 worth of products. None of it worked. And next thing I knew, I was laying in a hospital bed, unable to breathe for myself, fighting for my life. Well, what happened? Well, when I finally came together and could breathe for myself and was conscious again, I made a promise that I will do everything in my power to educate the benefits and learn how to use cannabis and know that it can help me. Because when I worked in oncology in the 70s, the two doctors that I worked for were trying to get cannabis for, which we called it marijuana back then, for our patients that were struggling with pain and sleep. Little did we know what more it could do, but we couldn't get approval for that. So I had somewhat of an education on cannabis, not fully understanding it. So I took all of my medical training and put it to use to learn about my own system and how to apply cannabis and understanding that cannabinoids and terpenes play a role. It's just not walking into the dispensary and somebody putting a product in your hand like we do pharmaceuticals and if it doesn't work, then we just try something else. It's a much bigger system than that that we need to know. Debbie, what caused you to, to not be able to breathe and stuff? Well, at the time, I was being forced off of high doses of opiates, so you oh, can't okay. have severe lung disease and okay. not have an impact. Yes. I developed the flu in the process, and then I was had MAC lung disease, which is a form of TB, which we didn't know that yet, but I was developing it. And so... And then I'd had MRSA in my lungs, and it can raise its head at any time. So you put all that together, and that's where I landed. Wow. Boy, Debbie, that was, uh, I hate to say it, but you were a mess. Oh, <laughs> without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Some would still say I'm a mess, but it's an acknowledgement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, I mean, we've, Corey and I, you are interview number 394. We've never had anyone like this before, have we, Corey? No. That, that this, is, this is a first for us in dealing with what you have. And uh, tell us about the first time that you, you said you went into the pharmacy, the uh, dispensary, bought $500 worth of product. It didn't work. Tell us about the time that you started to educate yourself and you took some product that did work. Oh, it was life changing is what I'm going to tell you. And it's like when I first noticed by taking a combination of THC, CBD, and those and I didn't even know about terpenes yet, but just understanding the THC and the CBD that I needed combination ratio. When my pain level started reducing, I didn't believe it. It was like, okay, I've lived in this pain for so long and I didn't dare want to tell anybody because I was afraid it would disappear. So it's like, I can't say a word to anybody. I just have to keep following this. I documented every single thing I did. I, I, was, I have huge piles of paper documenting how I went about this process and learning. You have to know when it's hitting you and what's it's happening. So it was 
it was just like daylight and dark between turning my pain from a 10 to a three, which is something I hadn't been able to do with anything I'd ever done and be able to function. And so it took me months before I would even admit to anybody that cannabis was actually reducing my pain that much. And then it became nobody believed me. It can't do that. Well, yes, it can. And Mm -hmm. that's where, you know, I started realizing that there's a lot to this and we need to fully understand how this works. It works maybe differently for everybody, but I believe if it can do that for me, it can do that for someone else. If you know your system and you're reacting to it properly. The other beautiful thing is, is that you're not watching a clock. You're in control of when you take your medication. You don't have somebody setting the boundaries. So my pain, you know, if you keep the right cannabinoids in your system on a consistent basis, you can stay at that plateau of three. I don't know if I'll ever get below three, but I'm happy with three. I can function with three. So I haven't really pushed to do anything, any, you know, I do try different things, but once I found something that works, I want to stay there. The even more interesting part of this is when I started realizing I didn't need all those other pharmaceuticals to breathe. So I was taking... I don't know how many atomizers and breathing medications to keep me breathing because I only use 30% of my lungs. And I would find myself forgetting to take those prescriptions. And then I would be hard on myself. Oh my gosh, I never forget to take my medicine. And I never did because it was what I had to have to breathe. And it took me a while to understand that my body was talking to me and telling me, you don't need all these pharmaceuticals you're using something else that can guide you and help you. And so I don't use but one breathing medication now today. And my lungs, and I breathe better than I think I have in a very long time. What was that like for you when all of a sudden you're not in in this incredible debilitating pain after all these years? I mean, that must have been pretty emotional. It is emotional. And it's, you know, it's like... uh, People don't believe you. You know, this is the thing. I would not let anybody photograph me. I wouldn't let anybody take pictures of me when I was so sick. Who wants pictures of that? Who wants to remember that? And now when I tell this story, it's hard to believe that this is this much as this possible, but it is. My medical records prove it and my medical records show it. And it's just getting people to understand that your life can really be different if you understand your own system and know how to engage it and understand what works for you. Debbie, what does a typical day look like for you as far as medicating and what kind of ratios are you on? I'm strictly a flower girl. Having lung conditions, I've learned that they work much better when they're introduced to flower and I'm bringing it completely into my lungs. When I first started, I was scared to death to use flower. I only vape. I have a tabletop vape that I use. But they had me so afraid that it would destroy my lungs and hurt me that I was afraid to do that. So I spent a lot of time researching and trying to figure out how it does work within our lungs. And so now I know it's my best friend. So just learning how to use it correctly and see the benefit of what it can give to me was life changing. But there was one phone call that changed everything. And it was a phone call after it had a CT scan of my lungs for the MAC lung disease, which I have nodules that have developed in my lungs. And I got a call and they said, your lungs are improving. And I said, 
wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I've been dealing with this since, you know, 1995. No one's ever told me my lungs are improving. So back up, go read that report again. <laughs> and <laughs> they mis- made a mistake. I mean, this is literally, I felt like they'd made a mistake. And they said, no, your lungs are improving. Your nodules are decreasing. So when that happened, it was like, okay, this is real. I mean, this is real. This is like life-changing benefit. We're making breakthroughs now. Yeah. You know, reducing someone's pain is one thing. A breakthrough for anybody that has MAC lung disease, they should know this. My doctors will not let anyone else know about this because I live in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's like this is information that anybody that has a lung condition should know about. Mm-hmm. So from that moment on, I started building a business, trying to educate, trying to teach, trying to help others. I wanted to do studies. I wanted to actually get other people's stories together, information to figure out what is everybody else doing to improve their health. And the thing I found is that people need education. They're not, we're not ready for that. We are not at a place where that can happen for the general public to give me that information and help me build that platform. Debbie, what was your uh, family's reaction to the change in you with uh, cannabis? It's been amazing. They're so happy. And, you know, I have uh, my mom just passed away. It'll be a year in November at 92, uh, raised in the world of no drugs. My mother-in-law the same. And they were like totally against me using cannabis when it start when I started. But now they're, they were my biggest advocates now because they can see the difference in me because they've lived with me. You know, I used to be their caregivers. Mm-hmm. So they've seen the change in me and can see that I'm living life again. I can't say that I ever lived life when I was living in a pain of 10. It wasn't a life. I was just existing from moment to moment. And um, my husband is so proud of everything that I've accomplished, especially when we've been told that just go home, accept your life, and you probably have five years. That's what they told me when I developed MAC lung disease. Five years. And I'm seven years in now. You're pretty darn amazing. Don't you think so, Ian? Yeah, I think you are. You, you, it's truly remarkable what you've gone through. I mean, to live for decades with a pain of 10 is just hard, hard for me to fathom. And I don't know whether, Debbie, I don't know whether I could have lasted that long. Yeah, I give my family a lot of credit for that. <laughs> my family always taught me that you will never have more put on you than you can handle. Mm. And believe me, there were times that that was tested to every degree. But I have to, you know, give my family credit for that from a young child. I've had health issues most of my life. I was born with a hereditary blood disorder called thalassemia minor. And I have been anemic my whole life. And now that I've developed cannabis in my life and I have engaged with my endocannabinoid system, I'm no longer anemic. Don't know the specifics around that, but it's pretty interesting that it I don't know. And in, in, in your 60s, all of a sudden, you're not anemic anymore after you've been anemic all these years. Yeah. And they gave you five years. Five years. And that was with treatment, and I couldn't do treatment. Uh, unfortunately, the diagnosis for MAC lung disease is not good. And they're, it's rare that anybody that has it should have this information. Well, our cannabis queen, Corey, was given months to live. That was 11 years ago. And 11 years ago yesterday, 12? 
it was 12 since I was told. Yeah, July uh, 2011. Yeah, so yeah, it's 12 for sure. Yeah, but the, you didn't go back to the doctor for a year because you were afraid, right? Yeah, a year and a half. I didn't want any more bad news. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't like it. And, and you can oh, share yeah. that, I'm sure, about you know someone telling you you only have, no one wants to hear you have X number of years to live no matter what. Mm-hmm. That is not something we should be doing. <laughs> you know, no. we should be trying to encourage people in ways to, you know, stay positive and upbeat and also give them the access to the tools that actually will help them. Debbie, what would life be like for you today if you had not found cannabis? I don't think I'd be living today. I think I would not be here. I was so ill. At the time they told me I couldn't raise my arms above above here. I couldn't raise my arms to even turn on a light switch. I was in a wheelchair. I had a 24-hour caregiver that was taking care of me around the clock. Uh, I couldn't bathe myself, do any of the family functions that you should do. I was totally a mess, as you put it earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) and that was being polite. <laughs> you, you were a mess, but now you uh, your your pain is from a ten to three. I think this is an absolutely remarkable story on what cannabis can do for someone if they just change. You know, there's so many people out there who are opposed to cannabis because of what they've been taught throughout the years that it's it's bad for you. But the ironic thing is that nobody has ever died from consuming cannabis. Yeah, there was a study done in 2014 in the U.S. that said that 128,000 people a year die from prescription drugs. 128,000 compared to zero. But in the U.S., cannabis is still a Schedule One drug. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense at all. None. And I fight every day to get that change, but we need a whole mindset shift for our society because you're right. People still think it's hard and dangerous and it's not. And that's why these stories are so important that people hear them. What you do with Cannabis Health Radio is so impactful and necessary because people need to know that these stories are real. These are Mm -hmm. stories that people whatever you have, changing it to where you're enjoying living life, where you're not so uh, so tied to prescriptions, um, where you can just enjoy waking up in the morning. I'm so thankful every morning to wake up and have the life that I have. I never thought this would be possible, and now it is. And it's because I made a mindset set change that, okay, no one's going to help me in the medical world because they just abandoned me. I have to do this myself. And I learned when I was sitting on that curb by myself, there's only one person I can count on. That's me. Yourself. No one knows me as much as I know me. Nobody knows my how I feel better than I do. I need to be my own health advocate. And I need to be able to take care of myself. Doesn't mean you don't need doctors. We still do. We still need them to run tests. I can't schedule that for myself. But they need to partner with me. And if they don't want to partner with me, they can't be my doctor. Debbie, what would you like to uh, say to people in conclusion? I want everyone to understand that they only get one health and one life. And no one lives it but you. 
you need to be in charge. You need to learn to sit with yourself and listen to your body. It's talking to you every single day. And that's not something that we're taught. And don't put your trust for your health all into someone else. I trusted my doctors to be my sole advocates. And that's where I went wrong. And we have other options today to explore. And a simple plant has made this much difference in my life and allows me to sit here and talk to you and your audience today. Debbie, what a remarkable story. It's fantastic. And I hope your pain level goes from a three to a zero. Oh, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Debbie. Fascinating story. Would love to touch base with you in a year or so. Just see how you are. Have you got it down to a two or a one or a zero? Okay, cool. That sounds great. Would love that. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Before we go, I want to let our listeners know that you can help us spread the word about the amazing, often life-saving health benefits of cannabis just by sharing the podcast, writing a review, or rating us. We very much appreciate uh, the help of everyone who's done that already, and we really like the five-star ratings. We'd also like to thank those of you who support the show by making a one-time donation or a monthly donation on our Patreon page, which you can do for as little as $5 a month. It helps to keep us running. You'll find out how to do that on our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Thank you for your support. It means so much to us. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodConX. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.